Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, My name is Daniel Fiella. I'm a husband, engineer, father of two, um, and I'm not a professional speaker. So I want you to lower your expectations this morning on professional (laughs) speaking, okay? Um, First, one note, I didn't expect so many people, and so I didn't print out enough handouts. So if you don't have a handout, can you raise your hand? Because I think there's more at the front than at the back. Okay, so maybe I did do enough. All right. Hey, that's great. So it's been distributed. Okay. Um, and then you guys hear this every week, but if you have kids, you want them in the nursery, you can do that. You know the drill. So that's that. Now, if you want credentials, I love the Lord and I love his word. So uh, that's changed my life. Excuse me. I always have to cry once, and I'm getting it out of the way early. So, <laughs> so, <clears throat> I'm really just I'm really thankful for the Bible. I just wanna. I just want to thank you guys um, for being a church, um, for honoring <coughs> his word together. So, thank you, Lord. Why don't we pray and then I'll, I'll be ready. Lord God, I... <coughs> Lord, we, we worship you. We worship you this morning. Lord, uh, we confess we're uh, we're so unworthy of your gospel. We're so unworthy of your truth, and yet you've made yourself known to us, Lord. Praise you, praise you, Lord. I I ask this morning that you would be present in our weakness. I, I know that you've never done anything through me unless it's been through weakness. And, and so I ask that you would be present <clears throat> even in our weakness. I ask that you would teach us something from your word this morning. <clears throat> Encourage us, exhort us to the truth as we submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Grace Fellowship Church has been preaching through um, John's writings we started in the Gospel of John. We just finished up with uh, 1 John. And we're on to 2 John now. We'll be going through the three epistles, and then we'll go on to some teachings on Grace Fellowship Church. Um, so, you know what I like? If you've been here, if you haven't been here, what I love about John's writings is he really focuses on life. Um, he's all about life, eternal life, particularly, and abundant life. John wrote his gospel. You recall at the end he says, this is why I did it, guys, so that you may have that life. You may have life. And then he writes his first epistle in chapter 5. He says, so that you may have assurance of this life. 
so that may you, you may know you have life. So John goes from evangelism in his gospel to assurance in his first epistle. And I think you might say in Second John, it's a form of discipleship and abounding in this life, um, preserving this life. And, and frankly, that's pretty awesome. You know why that's awesome? Because in this room right now, a lot of us are claiming to know that life. And so what we really need a lot of help in, perhaps, is in growing in that life. Second John's going to help us. John's going to give us help this morning. So you guys ready for that? Um, I really want to submit to this word with you this morning. Um, uh, <clears throat> it's hard to come to the scripture and, <clears throat> and really submit to it fully. Uh, so I've been <clears throat> reading this text and I've been praying over it and I've been praying for you guys. And <clears throat> I've been asking the Lord, what? Why do you want to stay through this? And <clears throat> I really believe that um, what God is calling us to is a deeper love. I remember um I remember a couple of years ago I was on the helping the excellence team we put out a survey and a lot of you guys contributed to that and um one of them was on displaying spiritual gifts <clears throat> what gifts does Grace Fellowship have what are they good at and <clears throat> topping the list was teaching I think a lot of people who come and what I've heard in the community is that people love teaching at Grace Fellowship you guys have been faithful to that, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, down about somewhere in the middle was encouragement. And um, I found that kind of surprising at the time. But I think that it's going to help us as we enter this text because this is not unlike the context of Second John. He's speaking to a people in much that same situation. They have a picture of the truth they've accepted, um, but John's asking them to encourage, essentially. So I want to just ask the Spirit of God to come. And, and as we prayed, I just want to remain in that spirit of prayer. <clears throat> so the text. Actually, the author isn't given. We've been saying John. It's not given, but... We can, we can say that it's most likely John. It's the same themes as First John, word choice. The repetition is much like John's writings. In fact, he doesn't even have a specific audience. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, it does have a specific audience, unlike First John. He's writing to the elect lady and her children. Um, so the scholars, some say that's probably a church, a congregation. It'll help us to think of it that way. So let's think of it as members of a specific church, and I think that's faithful to the text. Um, really, it's this specificness that, that Second John has that's different from First John. So Second John has pr- particular practical applications. First John was general to a general audience. Second John gets specific. So if you can open to Second John as we read together, it's the almost the, the last book in the Bible there. Start at the back and move. Let's see, where did I put that? Here it is. Um, Start at the back and go back three books. Um, I just wanted you to think of a couple things in particular as you read, and you can jot this on the back of your paper if you want. Two things. One, if you see any repeated themes with John's previous writings, especially First John, 
put that down on your paper. It'll help us because we're going to talk about that. And second, look at the tone of John's letter. Okay, so if you can think of that as we read. Repeated themes and the tone. And then we'll get into what, what John's saying. So I was going to ask someone to read this, but it's more, I don't have a little mic here. I'll read it. <clears throat> the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. <clears throat> so for those of you who like maps in your heads, we'll proceed by connecting this text to John's previous writings for context. Then we'll consider John's approach through his tone as we, as hopefully you've considered. And finally, we'll focus on the actual main exhortations. Um, so we have 30 minutes to go through a whole book of the Bible. That's a lot in my opinion. I mean... That's a lot of text to cover, I should say. And so we're not going to get to all of it. Um, okay, this is, this is question and answer time, especially kids. Um, the most obvious repetition with First John are what? The three main assurances of faith. Does anyone remember what they are? The three main assurances. Do we have... Oh, I guess the Scots aren't here. That's going to reduce the count. Does, does anyone... Any kids, anybody, what are the three main assurances? Shout them out. Obedience to the commands. Confession, that's right. Knowledge of the truth. Love of one another. Now, because I'm a kid too, I made a little connects thing. <laughs> okay? Now... I didn't want, I wanted this to be more than cute. It's more than a mnemonic device. So for the audio only people, let me explain it. This is just a triangle. And I have three note cards on each vertice, each point. Love, obey, 
and know, right? Now, I stole this from Nabs. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but um, I have my own thoughts about it, I think. Um, I heard this from some... I saw this from somebody. Anyway, I, uh, <clears throat> I like the triangle for a couple reasons. Number one, it's... A triangle is recognized by having all three vertices and sides. So a Christian is recognized by having all three of these virtues or proofs providing assurance of salvation. Each virtue is necessary. If just one point is missing, you don't have a triangle. Where's your triangle? You don't got one. So if you have one evidence missing, you don't have the full assurance. They're all necessary. Okay. I, there's a lot of other things. One other thing I wanted to point out is that um, each expression grows or diminishes with the other. Okay, So when a deeper understanding of truth, a knowledge of the truth is accepted, it flows out in deeper love and deeper obedience. Yeah, it has to work that way. Similarly, when love grows cold, when love is growing cold, there's a risk that you're going to not know the truth as well. There's a risk that you're, you're not going to obey as you ought. So the virtues work in tandem. They work together. Okay? And finally, and this is really what I want to hit on, most importantly, this triangle reminds us to keep our hope rooted deeply in God. What do I mean by that? We need to keep our hope rooted deeply in God. It's tremendously important to today's text, so I want to unpack that a little. <clears throat> this is really important because John speaks really boldly. Okay? He's a really gently, gentle-spoken guy, but he's bold. Uh, he pens some of the harder New Testament texts. I won't go over them all, but just remember John 6. Who reads John 6 the first time? It's like, that makes all total sense. Eat Jesus. It's a hard one, okay? And he doesn't back down from it. John is the one who records that. John records a bunch of hard texts. Remember 1 John? If you sin, you don't know God. That's John. Okay, he, he's black and white. He hits it. But this has the potential to discourage the believer John comes back and puts your hope in God again and again. At the end of John 6, I forget what he says particularly, but it's to the effect of God's going, uh, I won't misquote, but he encourages you in God. Read the book. And <clears throat> he does that again and again in Scripture. Um, I find John making the point most poignantly by deliberately tying his primary exhortations, love one another, obey the commands, know the truth, love the truth. He ties them again and again back to God himself. Investigating these themes in John's previous writings reveals to me what I consider a fairly compelling pattern that John associates each of these with a member of the Godhead. Okay, see if you can see it. I'm just going to reference a few scripture, but it's all throughout John's canon, if I can call it that. Think of this. For God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus said, as the Father has loved me, the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And finally, the title... God is love, 1 John 4. Remember that? God the Father is most often in John's writings associated with love. Similarly, the Spirit of God is again and again associated with the Spirit of truth. And I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper who will be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He will guide you into all the truth. And finally, in 1 John, the Spirit is the truth. He, he defines it. And finally, uh, well, what's John saying? He's trying to show us the Father wants to give us love. The Spirit wants to give us truth. And Jesus, the Christ, the King, gives us righteousness. He models perfect obedience. He is the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2 says. Okay, so I'm not trying to divide the Godhead. I don't think that's what John's doing. We know God is one. But John isn't saying they're limited here, but I think he's saying at least this, that the evidences of being born again is that the whole person of God is coming through, is being communicated to our whole person. So God himself, a God of love, um, truth and righteousness is living in us, and not just in us, but through us. So out of our hearts, what does love touch the heart? Out of our hearts flows the love of God the Father. Out of our minds, throws, our heads flows the thoughts of the Spirit of God. And out of our hands, our bodies, flow the works of Christ. So John's saying, this is not you guys. It's the Father. It's the Son. It's the Spirit. It's God himself going through you. This is a picture. It's going to assure you that you know God. It's going to show the world who God is. And this is really actually a comfort because when John says things like, hey, if you don't, if you sin, you're out. He doesn't quite say it that way. But when he says these hard things, he backs it up with God. God's the one. Our entire work, if I could say it this way, is just to let God himself shine through us. That's what John's exhortations amount to. And, and this is really a place of rest. It's a place of um, calm. And, and it keeps us from hearing God's word as burdensome. When you he- read Hebrews entering his rest, um, it's because God's, God is one doing the work. So our first bit of context that's going to help us take this hard passage at times is to abide in God's work. I want, to, I want us to remember that. Abide in God's work. Okay, second, let's look at the tone of the letter. Does anybody have any thoughts on what tone they heard in the letter? I guess if anybody wants to shout it out. Yeah. yeah. Fatherly. Fatherly? Yeah, I think so. That's a good word for it. Anybody else? Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me paint a picture. Was he excited? Uh, was he stern? Was he pleading? People. Okay. Yeah. Nah. What I heard was the heart of a shepherd. I don't know if you heard that. I heard loving, affectionate, even humble. And I love how that draws you out. John's tone draws you. Um, tone matters, doesn't it? Think about that. My three-year-old daughter, Karis, is, is our strong-willed child. And um, when I see resistance coming in her, it's a simple change of tone from Karis, don't hit Jaden, okay, to Karis, honey, don't hit Jaden, okay? That's enough to move her heart to obedience. It really is. Just like that. That's what John gets. He's got it. He's doing it. Okay, now think of John. John is not a second-rate apostle. John has authority, if we can say so. He's allegedly the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's of a select few who witnessed the transfiguration. He was at the crucifixion. He was at the tomb. Okay, He was up front and center in a way that even few among the disciples were. And yet, in spite, despite these impressive credentials, John writes with this unassuming, affectionate, disarming tone that would move even a stubborn heart. He doesn't rest on his authority. I want to look at four examples of this because I think this helps us absorb God's word. Okay, look at, look at the uh, text with me as I look at this. Verse 1, he says, 
he expresses love for them intentionally. He says, whom I love in truth. Whom I love in truth. He expresses love for them. Two, he rejoices. He rejoices over them. In verse 4, he says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now look, he doesn't focus on the errors of the others. He focuses on the few who get it, who are, who are doing it. That's beautiful. He rejoices over them. Three, he gently reminds them of the truth. Gently being the key word. Verse five, and now I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another, essentially, he says. Okay, this is John the Apostle. He has, he can command it, but he asks. Okay, finally, four, he finds pleasure in their presence. He, he likes actually being physically close. Verse 12, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. So we really see, I think, the heart of a shepherd coming through this letter. What is John? He, he's directing the flock to green pastures. He's saying, there's bad stuff over here, there's good stuff here. He's protecting, he's feeding. <clears throat> Any disciple or shepherd understands this, we should take note. Okay, all of us almost are in that role in some capacity. <clears throat> what does John do? He delights in them. He t- finds pleasure in them. He rejoices in obedience. He sees. He wraps all these exhortations in unmistakable love. And yet he's not afraid to warn of danger directly and without pulling punches. <clears throat> in a world where many are leading with appeals to strength or some special understanding or delegated authority, John sets a different trend. He makes his appeal in love and clear and simple truths. He builds trust by showing he cares and he knows what he's talking about. So he just, he lets the love of God flow through without adding anything to it. And so I just want you guys to consider, uh, this is important for people who disciple or shepherd particularly, ask yourself this. We're not going to answer this now, but do you take delight in the other person that you're with? Your children, um, people in your small group. For instance, praising God for them in your prayers. Remember Paul, how often he praises. Do you take delight in them? Do you hear your, do they hear you rejoice over their progress to them? Look, look what you did. This is awesome. You know, you tied your shoes. (laughs) And do you rejoice over the little things? Are you able to be clear and direct in presenting the truth? Do you hedge? John doesn't hedge. He tells it as it is. That's love. And do you find pleasure in face-to-face encounters enough to prioritize them over digital communications? Okay, that's a tough one sometimes. This last point about pouring time into each other's lives is so significant. I remember in one of my first discipling relationships, um, I saw all aspects of my mentor's life. I lived with his family. Um, I met with him at work. I observed him at his workplace. I helped him around his house in the yard. I witnessed with him. We spent many hours just sitting and talking. Okay, It was this observation of love incarnate that allowed me to receive his teaching in a way. It doesn't work, it doesn't work over other sources. Okay, So I just wanted to mention a couple res- points of research. There's a lot of research out there for people who like research. Um, but it's increasingly verifying that vulnerable, vul- vulnerability in sharing our lives is the currency to bless others with truth. Here's two examples. Research by Dr. Gottman. I'm not going to back this up with where he's from and all that, but I can tell you afterwards. 
shows that the couples whose relationships are flourishing, it's like, whoa, those are the cool guys. They get it. <clears throat> they, they love one another. They tend to express, you've heard this maybe, positive statements, five to one ratio, positive to negative statements in their marital relationship. Okay, People whose relationships don't flourish, about one to one. So they're saying positive things about the same amount as negative. You know, they're, Maybe they're being honest. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my point is, we need to rejoice over one another. It, that's, research is showing that, too. Here's another point. Dr. de Blasio, I've read, about this, read some of his stuff. He says that healing happens at a neurological level when we look at each other in the face and talk. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's like we need guys to tell us this. But, but look, it's, it's research proves it. Uh, this cannot happen over Facebook, over email, over a text message. It just doesn't work, even phone calls. So look, John's like, he gets it. I want to be with you. I want to see you. Um, so I'm just saying, let's look at each other in the face and make it personal. You know, if you love one another, make it personal. That's easy, right? Okay. So that's the tone. <clears throat> it's shepherding, I think. It's, John sets a good context for what he wants to say. So let's look at the content of the letter. We've looked at the tone, the themes that have carried over. <clears throat> I don't have an outline. Where are we? Point two. There we go. Um, we've been talking about, yeah. So John identifies a threat. He gives three exhortations to avoid the threat, and he gives three warnings for not heeding them. So we're just going to step through this. I like stepping through the passage, but it's hard. There's so much, in my opinion, so we're going to do the best we can. <clears throat> First, the threat. The threat is the same as in 1 John, isn't it? By the way, isn't it interesting? John is the, is the expert on Antichrist. Nowhere else in Scripture. It's John. That's an interesting study, but we're not going to study that. We're going to look at deception quickly. Deception through Antichrist. It's right in verse 7. Many deceivers... Can you see it? Verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. In the flesh. So, it might seem weird to us here. I mean, does anybody believe that here? Okay, but this is, this is a big deal. The deception here is that Jesus was not truly the God-man. Both Son of Man and Son of God, begotten both of fallen man, of a holy God. But friends, you cannot have Christianity without this mystery. To bridge that gap between God and man, you need an intercessor, a go-between, who knows and represents both sides. So denying the identity of Christ as the God-man undermines our message. And John doesn't mess around with it. So, you know, some of you may be here today haven't heard the gospel, so I just want to finish the story for you. What is this God-man all about? Okay? This is the gospel. Jesus came on a rescue mission to earth. Okay? And he came down to earth and he brought us the oracles of God down to man. Namely, God wants to be near you. But guess what? He calls us to repent and to trust him so that he can give us that righteousness required by the Father. So Jesus got it, right? He was blessed by God. He had this communion because he lived the perfect life in the flesh. What about me and you? How can Jesus make us righteous? For us to live, we need righteousness. We need our unrighteous ways cleansed. We need pure hearts and clean hands. So Jesus said, 
hey, give me, give me your heavy sins, give me your troubled hearts, and he carried them to the cross. <clears throat> I just want to read scripture because it says it the best. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It's a beautiful message. And the resurrection from the dead three days later proves that God the Father accepted the transaction. That means the obedience of a simple faith makes it ours. He took our curses on the cross and he poured out the blessings he earned. That's the gospel. And this deception in 2 John is not to be trifled with because it undermines that message. So I want to look at that. <clears throat> John gives three exhortations and warnings. So we're going to go backwards because that's more interesting. As you look at those points, that's a purposeful backward numbering. And uh, we're going to start with the false teachers, then yourself, then one another. Three exhortations. Verse 10. Concerning the false teachers, what ought we do? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Wow. Do not support, don't even greet them. Okay, this is weird, a little bit, maybe. Okay, because we don't have this sort of sense of communal guilt. The warning is that we're going to become culpable for their sins. Okay, that's not an American virtue. Communal reward and punishment seems foreign in a culture which prizes individuality and achievement and, and judgment only goes to the offender. But this is not the value system we see in Scripture and in other cultures even. From Scripture, we see the whole human race cursed in Adam, the whole race, and blessed in Jesus Christ. We see the whole nation of Israel judged over the sin of some. I'm thinking, that guy who Phineas got. And... but. Well, actually, blessed through the righteousness and the intercession of a few. Phineas, that's a good example. And Moses, his intercession. The whole nation was judged and blessed. And then even think of the New Testament, the seven churches in Revelation. They're treated as a whole, rewarding and judging as a whole, even though some were doing it right and some weren't. So Scripture upholds communal responsibility. And actually, some Middle Eastern cultures still do today. Okay, Contrast an American icebreaker what do you do? Where do you work? What do you achieve? With Middle Eastern, who's your father? Where are you from? Okay, It's different. The focus is on your association within a community. And so verse 10 wouldn't be a surprise to the audience. They get it. Avoiding communal guilt with, uh, by avoiding false teaching makes a lot of sense. Don't associate with the false teacher. So that's all I want to say on that, but it's important. Don't associate with false teaching. <clears throat> Working backwards, let's look at this, let's look at one, yourself. Eight and nine. Watch yourselves, he says. <clears throat> Watch yourselves so that you may not lose out on what? The full reward. Who wants to win? I want to win a full reward. Okay? Who wants it? Who wants it, huh? Amen. I want a full reward. So, got kids, do you want lots of treats? 
And you want to stay up late all night long? Okay, that's like heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. Lots of treats and staying up late and all the cool things you can imagine and more. Okay, but you're not going to get that if you neglect the teaching. So watch yourself. Watch the teaching. It's as simple as that. Okay, we want to be blessed by the best things. Then let's listen to what God has to say. Now, what I want to dwell on is this last one. One another in verse 5 to 7. It has the most peculiar exhortation, I think. He says, how should we help one another, okay? You need to watch yourself, avoid the false teachers, but what about one another? What about your friends in the church? How do we help? Guard against deception. John says, love one another. Verse 5, and I ask you, dear lady, I'm going to skip to the end of that verse, that we love one another. And this is love that you should walk in it. It being love. This is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is His commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. So that you should walk in it. It being love. The commandment is love. So, and then He says, for, we can say because, because many deceivers have gone out into the world. So He's saying something kind of interesting, isn't He? He's saying a great protection against deception is to love one another. A great protection against deception is love. He's saying to stand against Antichrist, we need to love one another. Or, let's say it this way, we love because truth is under attack and we're in danger of compromising it. Okay, so he said, what's the big deal with compromising truth? Well, at least two things happen. We saw that you can lose your full reward in verse 8. And secondly, in verse 9, Everyone who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So when truth is compromised, again, love helping you not compromise truth, some will have been found to have never even known the truth. If truth is compromised, some will be found, perhaps in our midst, to never have even known the truth. That's scary. And I, I think that's one of the scariest passages in Scripture, to live a seemingly good life and at the end to have found never to know the truth Remember, I'm referring to Jesus' words. He says, those who confessed and did good works, yet did not know God. He says, away from me. I never knew you. And that can happen when we allow an environment where deception is present and pure truth absent. When that happens, we can allow self-deception to occur in each other's hearts. So how do I help you? I love you. I don't just preach to you, actually. <laughs> I love you. That's why love is so essential. Okay, I could go, we could go on about all the deceptions that exist today, but let me list a few. We live at a time in American church history in which dis many deceptions are plaguing the church. And being bold and pure and radical, uh, being a Christian, it looks increasingly radical. Um, some of the deceptions we're seeing, truth is whatever you believe. Immodesty and sexual promiscuity, promiscuity is normal. Submission is repressive. These are feel like they're outside the church, and that's why I'm listing them. But guess what? It's coming in, too. Using biblical language to talk about homosexuality is hateful, and even criminalized in Canada, by the way. And I think it'll be here soon. The list goes on. <clears throat> okay, We live in a pagan community, and it's, it's seeping into the church, and we're at risk of hedging on the truth. So to combat this very thing and more pernicious sins... John exhorts, or deceptions, love for the brethren. He exhorts love for the brethren. So I'm thinking, John, maybe you're thinking, this seems like indirection. Like, here's the issue, let's go over here to fix that. 
You know, if there's a problem, let's deal with it directly. That's what you might say. If we're struggling with doctrine, let's focus on getting better study materials, obviously, or surround ourselves with knowledgeable people, or learn to diffuse wrong arguments and articulate light, articulate, that's funny to stumble on, articulate right theology more clearly. So that's what we should be doing, right? But no, John's saying that's not what you need to get to the next level. And to help you withstand all these deceptions, actually, you need to love one another. It's, it's really peculiar, I think, but the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Looking back at how we got here, John writes with this affection for his fellow believers and a God-centered hope to be watchful. Be watchful, he's saying, church. There's a lot of danger before you. And so I want you to love one another. He says, do you want to keep the commands? Then love one another. Do you delight in the truth? Then love one another. Do you want great reward? Huh. Why don't you try loving one another? Do you want to help the brethren remain pure and abound in the faith? Let's do loving one another again. And do you want to keep deception out and help the deceived know their peril? Love one another. <clears throat> I want to make one side comment. Why does love help us? Why does it keep us from deception? The text doesn't say it, right? Here's a thought. If we speak truth to one another that claims to be the most beautiful truth of all, worth giving your life to, and it doesn't compel our hearts to deeply love one another, I'm going to ask, you're going to ask, is it truth really real? It, it claims everything, but what's it doing? So when we love and obey the commands, we prove the truth. And seeing one another obey the commands, when you see me obey the commands, when you see each other obey the commands, it's a privilege you don't get from hearing John Piper on the radio or Ravi Zacharias. And so in a way, you and I have more influence in helping one another hold to the truth than those amazing, brilliant guys. Our love helps us believe. And so I mentioned at the beginning that I think God want, is calling us to a deeper love. And, and so we just read about that in the text. That's what John's saying. So I can say that with confidence. Um, but perhaps there's even more. I mean, <clears throat> we, we depend on one another to excel in love. We depend on one another to excel in, in this Christian life. Um, I need you. I need you to be the church. I need, you need me to be the church. We need one another. So, <clears throat> let, me just, let me just give a few thoughts. Really, I just wanted to share what this text says because I think it's profound. <clears throat> and, and John doesn't give a lot of ways to love other than, you know, you can read his former writings. I have a few th just considerations, but I want each of us to take that to heart. How can we love one another? I thought about it a while and I was thinking, well, I could give them the, you know, pound them with these really great tips or something. And I thought, you know, I, uh, I really believe that each of us needs to make that search. Find out how to, com how to spur one another on to loving good deeds. Okay? Now, I, w I do want to just mention a couple things for your consideration. <clears throat> okay? One, an one thing is, is quantity time. Quantity time. Um, I'm not sure we're going to do it if we're not spending quantity time. Quality time is the buzzword. Guess what? We need quantity time. We need time together. And so, it's just a choice. You've got to choose to do it. I'm not even lifting myself up as an example in this regard. Okay? 
but I'm saying, keep me to it too. I want to do that with you guys. <clears throat> I just leave it at that. Quality, quantity. T- Another one is. Um, let me just say that Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Okay, perhaps the biggest cultural divide there ever was. Boom. And then he also did the male and female thing and the slave thing when he was at while he was at it. He did, he tore them all down. Tore them all down. So. Sometimes it's, it, you can feel like you're on the outside, okay? So the most obvious one is disciple-makers, non-disciple-makers, okay? There's a few of them, though, aren't there? Young family, single person, okay? Student, not student. But everybody has one time or another has felt like they're on the outside, or maybe they don't think about it because they're accepted. And I just want to say, for people who feel on the outside, Jesus broke down the dividing wall. Jesus broke it down. So we need to accept that truth and press into it. It's not right for people to create cliques if that's their intention. But you see, we are one body. We are one faith. We have one goal in life. And in heaven, all of this will be done away with. And that's all that will matter. And so the things that we tend to cling to are going are to be gone. So for the people who are on the outside... Press in to holding on to it. That's going to help us love one another and the gifts to flow freely. And it's going to help us defend the truth because we do need one another to grow and be the church. For people who don't sense that, it's probably because you're in. So, so be sensitive. Ask, hmm, how could the other person be feeling? Don't ignore it. Be it bring it up like I am right here. I'm saying it out loud. It's kind of weird, right? But look, we got to bring it up. So bring it up, validate it, affirm it, say, and, and uh, try to understand how you can uh, be there. I'm just going to leave it at that. But um, we, it really takes both sides to bridge a divide. <clears throat> um, here's another thought. Gifts. Uh, so I'll say that that teaching, I think, is one that we recognize that several people in the midst have. I think there's a lot of people who have great gifts in service, perhaps. I, I believe that we have a lot of gifted people in service. What I see in this passage and what I just want to commend is that more shepherd-hearted individuals who maybe have been wondering how to encourage, express yourself. Enter into one another's lives. Enter into one another's suffering. Um, enter into one another's pain. Be a shepherd. Um, you don't need a title to do that. You don't have to be an elder. You don't even have to be a parent. If you know how to just be there, you've got something. So I just want to encourage encourage us. All the gifts are necessary. We have some gifts and more supply, perhaps. And I just want to encourage everybody. Some of you don't feel like you're being used or whatever, but we need you. And some people feel like you're being overused, perhaps. Um, share the load. Maybe ask someone else to help. But I'm saying we all need to pull together. We need to row at the same time because as we're reading here, the reward is communal. So we need each person to play a part. Let's pull together to make it happen. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to skip two pages because I can and I'm just going to say one more thing. 
Um, what is love? What is love? There's a few definitions out there. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I want to. I, I think maybe we many have distilled it down to this: delighting to put others' interests first. Putting others' interests first, and you got to say delighting to put others' interests first. Otherwise, it feels like fake, right? So love. I'm going to say love is delighting to put others' interests first. So if that's true, then I, I think we can define the essence of love like this. This is just Daniel speaking. This isn't the Bible, but I think this is very faithful to Scripture. The essence of love. Love is offering yourself, yourself, to draw others into worship. Love is offering yourself to draw others into worship. Worship of Almighty God. Love is intent on increasing the worship of God because this delighted communion with God is man's deepest need. And his greatest good. And guess what? It brings God pleasure. So I believe our high calling in the service of the king is worship increasing love. What John is arguing for here. Your high calling, your high calling today is this kind of love. The beautiful thing about this most high calling is that it is given to every believer. You are all gifted with it. Because you have it. If you've accepted Christ, you have the Father's love. And it can be expressed in every relationship. If you've ever wondered, what's God's will for me? What do I do with my life? This is it. You, ha- you can stop asking. Love. Love one another. That's what Christ came to do. and That's what he's calling us to do. Loving those around you is at the center of God's will. So mothers, when you patiently love your children, husbands, when, husbands, when you patiently love your wives, and when we love one another... And when we love a fallen world, we are in the center of God's will for the church. If we want to see God glorified and the church made great, let your love be great. Starting right where you're at. So, I'm just going to end on that. Um, Do I pray now? I'm supposed to pray now. Okay. Let's pray. Um, Father God, we, uh, 